This episode is supported by Enscape, empowering your design workflow by turning your BIM model into an immersive 3D experience. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have a conversation with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the co-evolution of architecture and technology. In this episode, I welcome Adam Chernick. He's the Director of Interactive Visualization at Shop Architects in New York City, leading research and development for virtual and augmented reality and adjacent emerging technologies. He earned his Master's of Architecture from Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, New York, with an emphasis in design technology, and then completed a full-stack web development certificate at Columbia University. We get into a little bit of that in this episode, and it's a pretty fascinating example of the kind of intrinsic motivation that Adam has. On his website, which I've linked to in the show notes, he says his passion is to build novel interactive applications in their corresponding UI UX. He spends most of his time in Unity solving human-centered design problems. This was a really fun conversation. I truly enjoyed it, and I love Adam's energy and excitement. And most of all, again, back to that intrinsic motivation that he has. He identified a passion, and he's doing everything he can to chase it. So without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Adam Chernick. Adam, welcome to the podcast. It's great to, it's been so long since I've seen you. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> a week now. <laughs> it but has yeah. been. Yeah, thanks for coming today. It's, it's going to be a great conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Excited to nerd out. So you are the, tell us your title at Shop Architects. You are the director of something interesting at Shop Architects. Yeah, it's a mouthful. The director of interactive visualization. So I lead a team that does applied research. Awesome. And you mostly are working on the software development side of things as far as like an output of that research? Correct. Yep. Building mobile applications and the like. And I would love to get into kind of your, how you got to be into that position. I know you've mentioned a little bit of that history to me in the past, and it would be fun to talk about. I think what I wanted to do is step back big picture first and just talk about the whole AR scene and what, what is exciting to you about that and how it's uh, you know affecting and potentially changing the profession. I know not everybody has access to these tools in the way that you do. They're more consumer, let's say. But from your perspective, what draws you into the world of augmented reality or mixed reality or you know any any kind of incantation of of all of the realities and then how you're applying that into your day job at shop yeah absolutely augmented reality is a pretty amazing thing and i remember the first time i had seen augmented reality was while i was at hok the ability to combine the physical and the digital together in a seamless way where they are actually interacting with each other, having this digital layer on top of your physical world. Uh, To me, it just poses endless possibilities and 
endless use cases for the technology. And so the first time I had seen it, I specifically remember thinking back and, and saying to myself, wow, I need to learn how to do that. That's cool. And I mean, what's so neat about it, I've, I've experienced many different kind of variations on the theme, right? There's, there's like the fight club kind of scenario where the Ikea ads are popping up in the scene overlaid on reality. And that's kind of like a 2D or two and a half D, you know, it's got perspective that it matches the background with some kind of a, a match move kind of an idea to make it feel like it's inhabiting 3d space then there's like the pure 2d overlay kind of stuff that i think we saw with the monocle stuff back in the earlier yelp days where you could hold the phone up as soon as you turned it kind of you know into landscape mode it would show you where the businesses were as you were looking out over the landscape to kind of help you gain a heading and then we see the full-on you know hold the magic window up which is an ipad and the building is there at one-to-one scale on the site, and you get to walk up to it, around it, uh, into it. And as long as you're looking at that screen, you're immersed in a different version of reality with 3D you know, geometry, what's fully shaded, into that scene so that you can actually see, like you guys have done at shop with the, the tower. Like there's a, a New York Times article, I'll put a link to it in the show notes where you guys are holding up the ipad and you're looking at a blank site with a hole in the ground and then the building drops in and there it is and you look up and you're looking all the way up at the top of this tower at one-to-one scale it's pretty impressive yeah yeah that's uh definitely an exciting one um back then that the new york times article um was written when we had first explored that technology for the first time the first time that we had done this one-to-one scale ar so that you can visualize this building within the context in which it's going to live, you can see the implications that its shadows are going to have on the buildings around it because we've built in kind of this um, geolocation and very accurate sun path system. But then the fun part and the exciting part for us, right, is being able to not just use it on one project, but use it on all of our projects. Mm -hmm. And so we actually had a really successful meeting on the West Coast earlier this week, we had a group of our future clients together with, you know, five iPads, and they were all looking up at these buildings on this site. And, you know, for this project, we're just in schematic design. So we had a lot of options. So we had option toggles where now these clients are just holding up iPads at their future site and toggling through different options to see which massing they really like within the context that it's going to live. It was very powerful. They made some key decisions within that one hour period that, you know, a lot of our design leadership teams say typically takes a couple of weeks, which is very exciting. I mean, and that to me is what what is a lot of the technology that we talk about today is all based on communicating ideas in a better way. And when you think about like the role of an architect or the role of a designer or a role of a leader within a firm, it really becomes clear that better ways to communicate are always welcome because especially as a in a the visual medium and the spatial medium that we operate within as architects helping people understand what those what their decisions ultimately mean so if you're talking about clients holding different iPads up to really experience in a more immersive way than they can before the building is built 
what the different options that they would ultimately be deciding on for you guys to choose a direction to further develop that idea. That's really powerful at that point. That to me is what is so exciting about augmented reality and virtual reality is it, it gives people that immersive experience, which communicates so much more than a, an elevation drawing or even a, a rendering. Exactly. Or a, a diagram, right? On this specific team for this project that just happened where everybody's looking up at these iPads. We had the, the design team actually come to us and say, hey, typically where at the exact same time where right now we're using this iPad, typically we have a series of diagrams, you know, very beautiful line drawings that we create for each of these options. And we actually didn't have to take the time to create those diagrams for all these options now. So you're actually taking away a lot of time and energy that we usually have to spend on, you know, one part of this process. So not only is it, you know, decreasing the amount of time, but it's also decreasing the amount of work that that these teams are. But you're also taking away really important content for that future monograph, right? That's going (laughs) to... it in the bookstore you can't have this ar experience in a book (laughs) that's that's true that's true actually no i i I, i'm not going to say this solves all the problems i'll never say this solves all the problems (laughs) yeah you're still going to have to make those diagrams so so in what other ways besides communication is this is this changing kind of you know you've been doing this for a few years now like you said that that new york times article came out a few years ago You've obviously been working in this line of of work for for longer than that, I assume. So experiencing those changes over time, and you're still excited about this technology. Uh, so what it, what else is it doing and how, what other ways is it changing what we're experiencing in our profession? Oh, my goodness. This is one of my favorite questions. Oh, let's dive into some of the implications of augmented reality. Yeah, right. So... What's, what's very cool, let's use the example of one-to-one AR. You're looking up at a building. Mm-hmm. The system that we currently have in place is pretty good. It does a pretty good job. You, you know, there's a map system that we set up, and you click, hey, I'm standing right here. And then you turn it, and, and then you angle it to the position, and then you look up at it, and, and it's great, and it works. But it doesn't really know where this building lives on Earth. If it, You have to tell it right mm-hmm. where you're standing. We're moving into a world where you don't have to tell it anything. It knows exactly where you are. It knows what the world looks like. Um, and, and what I'm talking about is the idea of persistent augmented reality. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I'm very, very excited about is persistent augmented reality is you open your, your app and the app sees the world and it recognizes the world. And then it knows exactly where you're standing within the context of that world. And it can, it can drop digital content that is very accurately placed depending on where you're standing, right? And now so contextual awareness and, and persistence are, are keywords here. It, I, I, I want to go in two directions with this. Obviously, there's Apple's doing a ton of work on persistent AR kind of stuff. They have been for a few years now. And there's all these rumors about the Apple glasses, the wearables that are coming out. and there. But you can see examples of real-world application in the application updates that they've been sending out you know, over the last year, even mm-hmm. right where, where you can scan OCR from text from a photograph that you can take, and it can be at an odd angle on the table, and you can select that handwritten text and automatically turn it into, you know, computer readable text as one example. 
The other one is now with the with the maps, you can hold up your phone, and mm-hmm. and where if you're in a if you're in a location where you don't know directions because you're, it's so foreign to you, you, it says just hold up your phone and and just point it at a couple buildings. It sees what those buildings are, and then it knows the direction you're pointed, and it can help you in that way. And then I also think about like Facebook and Amazon and all these advertising based models where it's like <laughs> the kind of context that could be dropped into your scene could very very much be to target you as a consumer. There's just so many things possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or, you know, to target you, but also to help you. Right. Mm -hmm. I do think that there will be malicious uses, but there will also be very, targets a loaded word. Beneficial uses. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) exactly. Right. right. Um, Yeah, exactly. Who knows? Google knows you have a dog and they'll tell you through this. And and you've got it on your shopping list to get dog food and you're out Mm -hmm. running around and it's like, Hey, here's a place right here. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting stuff. So, so that's, that's really, really cool. And, and it seems like, you know, maybe we should get into a little bit into this idea of wearable because there's, there is the idea of the magic window that you're talking about, like holding up the iPads or the iPhone. I'm, I'm wondering before we get into maybe wearables is, is that what drew you into developing apps? Is it that you already had a device that this would work with, or did that play into that decision at all? Yeah, I had a device that it already worked with, right? And I had some tools that were incredibly accessible. And I had an incredible community of people that are so helpful online, Um, right? That's really what got me into development and and augmented reality is uh, its accessibility is just... I think that's huge. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing to me to think that there are millions of people that, that can take advantage of AR now in in maybe very small ways but they can take advantage of it nonetheless mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. incredible so okay so before we get into wearables now that you brought up kind of the the community online and the tools talk a little bit about that what what are the tools that you're using that, that got you interested in this that did make it easy for you to get into the development side of of things in this regard a while back while i was at hok i was I started with Unity, actually. It was in grad school. I actually had a course with Brian Ringley, who you had on the show. And legendary. He, the legendary Brian Ringley. A legend. He introduced Unity to me in this class. I was very excited about that. I saw a lot of implications with that. You know, pause maybe a few months after that course was when I actually saw augmented reality for the first time. I didn't know that you could do augmented reality with Unity, which is for anybody who isn't knowledgeable on this. It's a game engine. It's uh, usually a typical technology that you build video games with Unity. And so it's very spatial, but then you can also write software within it. Anyway, long story short, I saw augmented reality after that course. I started researching, oh, how do you build augmented reality? Turns out you build it with Unity. So I had taken that course, and then that's where that rabbit hole begins. That's awesome. And so Unity is a, a 3D environment kind of a output. You're talking about video games. You're talking about immersive mm-hmm. video games that mm-hmm. are, maybe you look at them on a screen, but you could potentially look at those through VR goggles or mm-hmm. an AR layer. Exactly. A lot of people ask me the difference between kind of a, what's the difference between V-Ray or Lumion or Enscape or, you know, any of these architectural visualization software, uh, 3ds Max, and what's the difference between those and Unity? And the difference is, is that 
the visualization software, you your your end product is content. It's an image. It's a video fly through. The end product with Unity is an app. You're actually building applications. So it's a software development tool. That's kind of the biggest difference here. And you can, you know, create architectural visualizations in Unity, but you're going to be doing so through an app. And and would you say that it was not difficult to learn? Medium difficult? Like, I know you're coming from a particular point of view with your education and things like that. But overall, you probably have a good sense as well as like what it actually took to, to pick it up. It is not too bad, right? Just like anything, it takes persistence and repetition and a lot of hours dedicated to it. But I would argue absolutely, you know, anybody could learn Unity. Um, I, I also, uh, Unreal Engine as well, right, is an incredible tool and it, it does very nice visualizations and you can build applications with Unreal. Uh, both of these tools, right, are very accessible. They have a ton of incredibly good learning content online. There's a lot of kind of getting started. Build your first augmented reality app. I think I watched a YouTube tutorial. I can't remember what year, a lot of years ago, that was build your first augmented reality app in under five minutes. That was the title of the YouTube tutorial. And it's true. You, you know, bring in a couple packages and, you know, build it out to your cell phone and uh, and maybe five minutes, there's some setup before that five minutes, of course. But regardless, what I'm trying to articulate is that it's uh, it's more accessible than people think. And it's it's probably the same YouTube video that that developer at Ikea used to, to develop their whole catalog now is running in AR on iPhones, on Android devices, because now we're seeing the marriage of hardware and software with the incredible camera systems, with depth sensing, mm-hmm. with LiDAR, mm-hmm. you name it, like on, on our the, the computer in our pocket, is bringing the ability for really accurate positioning and scale and shadows and lighting and all of these computationally, previously computationally intensive, I guess they still are, but we don't notice them as much, happening right there on the fly. And it's absolutely incredible what what is going on in the very much consumer space, but also in the profession of architecture. Yeah, absolutely. And and that IKEA comment brings up another really exciting one, which I'm pretty sure I would have to, you know, check myself on this one, but I'm pretty sure that they are also utilizing web AR. And web AR is a very exciting thing. Similarly to persistent AR, web AR is allowing anybody from any website to engage with augmented reality content now. And both Apple and Google are pushing their own kind of web AR components, which are very easy to use uh, and are very, very, again, accessible. But so, you know, before web AR, let's say two years ago, is kind of consumer level web AR. Before that, really, you had to build a mobile application, a native mobile application to view augmented Mm -hmm. reality content. Now you can embed these little AR snippets through your website to visualize products and look at your future sofa, you know, in your living room before you buy it. Yeah, it's incredible because, yeah, like you said, previously you had to develop a a native app to take advantage of APIs that were in the hardware. 
the camera mm-hmm. so that it could position correctly, the, you mm-hmm. know, the sensors and things like that. And now that's happening through a web page and it yep. hooks into the hardware as well. It's incredible. Exactly. Exactly. It's incredible. And what it does, the, the, the most exciting part of all is that it's decreasing the barrier to usage, yeah. right? You don't have to well, download an app. You don't have to don't sign have in. You don't have to download yeah. an app. You don't have to sign in. Uh, you, you don't have to do anything. You just click a button and you're yeah, able to know. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so when it comes now to, you know, combining unity with the work that you guys are doing, I'm sure I would love maybe if, if you expand a little bit upon how unity has bled out beyond AR into the practice at shop. So we use unity to build augmented reality apps, but we use unity for a whole bunch of things. The idea with game engines and what are called real time engines, right? These are all, that's kind of the, the big uh, exciting bit here is that they're all real time. I see you using, no one can see you, but I can see you doing that. The podcasting invisible air quotes around real time, right? Because yeah, yeah. There are some caveats to it. Like there are some caveats. Some really good hardware. And exactly. There are some caveats. But, but yeah, this real-time technology is, is amazing, and we're using it for a whole bunch of different things. So we're, you know, we're building a mobile application, which uh, is a portfolio viewer application, right? So uh, giving our clients and other stakeholders the ability to uh, view their project and consume live information and data we're sending project updates to our clients through this uh through this mobile application now sending them updated renderings sending them updated 3d modelings uh 3d models for their review um as well as some of the fun things is you know because this is unity because this is software development we it's an it's the wild west right we get to we now have the ability to tie in new tools and new software and new data so we have live construction mode, which is very exciting. So now it's just it's not just it's it's not just a viewer for our clients, but it's actually you know a management tool. They get to see how what, what floor slab has been poured last week, what floor slab is going to be poured next week, and which glazing panel has been installed. We're also looking at sensor data integration. We're we're. You know, you, building a whole bunch of different uh, fun and uh, useful pieces of technology. That's a, that's a great, great topic all in itself. There, there's the stuff we were talking about before is all kind of early stage during design. It's it, pre-visualization slash visualization slash a little bit of uh, immersive technology with, with the rendering. But what you're talking about now is actually delivering value to the owner during, you know, pre and during the construction process, Mm -hmm. not only in an imagery kind of consumption way, but also like you're saying, you're, they're tracking construction progress and they can see exactly what's been done and and compared to some previous time in the past, which could be a day, it could be a week, whatever it is, but they're actually getting to see this progress delivered right to their pocket, wherever they are, which is probably, you know, they're not on site all the time to actually see it. So they actually get to see it represented digitally, but there's this this direct connection to what's happening in reality with this progress tracker that you're talking about. I think it's absolutely incredible extra value that you're adding to the owner's experience during construction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, you hit the nail on the head. Um, we're, we're very excited about that one. Uh, another 
fun one is we've been doing we've been using augmented reality on construction sites. We've been overlaying building information models using augmented reality and one-to-one scale and creating new communication tools that we can use with our general contractors and with our other uh, subcontractors and stakeholders. So we can walk onto a site and we can look at, you know, look at a mechanical floor and see how the different elements are interacting with each other and interacting with the existing uh, built environment. But, you know, uh, that's not kind of novel what the, just the overlaying of the, you know, of the, building on top of its uh, context isn't really completely a novel solution. What we're excited about is actually drilling down into the data and understanding how these different traits need to communicate and, um, and thinking about the construction process, right? Um, thinking about how if you're a subcontractor and you need to install a specific you know, component or element, you have to obtain that information right from somewhere. These construction document sets are unruly. They can be thousands of pages long. You could have to reference, you know, you could have to reference 40 different pages in order to build a small, you know, a small element in one of these massive projects. Mm -hmm. How can we deliver this information in this, these instructions uh, in a more concise deliberate way. Um, so we're thinking through some of this process and trying to come up with some tools around that. Yeah. So it's coming back to communication again, right? Using it as a communication tool. Yeah. That's really interesting. And so how, I don't think we've ever talked about this before, but how does the connection to the real world happen when it comes to like progress checking? How are, is there just like this giant database with a bunch of open checkboxes in it and somebody's checking those things once those things are installed so there's someone kind of keeping an eye on everything? Or, or how does that actually working right now versus maybe how you see it working in the future? Yeah, that's a great question. Right now, our construction administration teams on these projects need to keep track of what is being installed, what is not being installed, you know, where the floor slabs are so that they can manage these projects in an efficient way. What they had typically been doing is keeping that information in, you know, certain software or in certain, you know, Excel sheets. We basically are using a new tool, which is called Airtable. If you haven't heard of Airtable, I highly recommend it. It's a pretty incredible tool. And they have an API, which means that our CA teams, this data that they're going to be entering into to, to have access to historically they're going to be entering this data anyway. Now we're able to actually piggyback and pull that data dynamically into our applications. So basically just tapping into our CA's uh, existing process. That's awesome. I've heard of so many people using Airtable for so many different things. It's it's absolutely a, an incredible tool. One of my favorite new tools to come out in the last, I don't know, five years or so. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty incredible. And then and then to touch on your second question, you know, what would be a better process? Because manual entry is one thing, but I think eventually we'll get past manual entry is or at least shared manual entry, which I think is big gonna be a big deal. There's a lot of incredible tools like Procore, right? Where the general contractor is tracking a lot of information and submittals and RFIs and tying all of that directly to the building information model, right? We're, we're, we've explored ways of pulling that data directly from 
the Procore API or from a different project management tool to display that information in these applications in a more dynamic way. It seems like there's a tie-in to the last two previous episodes, which touched on the reality capture side of things with some computer vision kind of an aspect where cameras on site everywhere with their mobile, whether one's attached to a spot, you know, agile robot or one's attached to the job site somewhere. And there's the potential for computer vision software just to be running all the time and being able to classify objects because it's been trained to do that. And once something's been put in place, it's like automatic flips a switch. Now it's part of the pipeline to show to the client that it's been put in place. Seems like a normal mode of a, a future timeline that seems possible. So, so when you go, let's finally get back to this whole idea of like wearable computers, because we've been talking about iPads and iPhones and Android devices that are in your pocket or in your, your bag. But are you excited about wearable types technologies with AR? I absolutely am. I'm I'm incredibly excited about it. I think the HoloLens 2 is an incredible piece of technology. The HoloLens 1 was an incredible piece of technology. I haven't gotten a chance to dive too deep into the Magic Leaps or the, I guess, lower computational power AR headsets. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I'm incredibly excited for, you know, the potentially inevitable Apple AR glasses or... Um, you know, maybe Google will do it. Whoever does it, very, very excited for that. I think there's some key technology that needs to be pushed a little bit further before that is going to be possible. But that's another big reason why I have picked this path very deliberately for myself is I think that that's an inevitable future where we're going to be overlaying digital content with these wearable glasses. And, you know, I I think it's going to be pretty fun uh, to be able to to help build that. And you're not going to have to pull a device out to see the things that we're overlaying on reality. Like that to me is what's so interesting about it is, especially with the really lightweight stuff, like we're seeing it with Snap and like their new partnership with Ray-Ban, right? Like there's a, there's a fashion element to it. There's a kind of functional aspect to it of, you know, Ray-Ban sunglasses, right? People wear sunglasses for a reason. And and these things being completely untethered, right? Like to me, that's where we're really talking about here. We're not talking about a, a VR headset that is tethered to a, a high powered computer. We're talking about, like you said, lightweight, more lighter weight computationally computers that you can bring with you that either are embedded in the goggles or the glasses itself, or it's something that's like attached to your hip or or whatever. I mean, I've I've worn the Magic Leap headset the original one at uh, a trade show. And I thought it was incredible. Like it, it really is incredible to be able to walk freely and not have to worry about running into any obstacles because you are overlaying something on the real world because of its camera system and its positioning. And it's kind of doing that 3d tracking the whole time. And you could, in those, you could look at a scale model that sat on the table or on the floor and you could get up really close to it or you could step back and you could walk around it or you could load in something that was full scale and you could experience it at full scale inside of a conference center. But it's it's a tall building and, and like the background, the roof, the ceiling of a conference center kind of disappears when you overlay a building on top of it. So it almost doesn't matter 
like you don't have to be on site to experience the stuff that you're talking about. And I think that's kind of an important distinction to make, even with AR, where it is overlaying a digital layer on top of the physical world, doesn't mean you need to be in the right location to still experience it fully. Absolutely. Absolutely. We have in our, in our application, we have uh, what we call tabletop mode, right? Where you use augmented reality just to drop a small version of, of the model on a table and you can walk around it. It doesn't have to be one-to-one scale. We also have in our application what we call orbit mode, which isn't augmented reality at all. You just use your thumb to spin around the model and zoom in and zoom out in a relatively intuitive way. You know, you can, yeah, consume this information in a whole bunch of different ways. It doesn't have to be one-to-one. Let's take a moment and talk about the sponsor of this episode. Enscape is a leading real-time rendering and virtual reality tool for the global AEC market. It plugs directly into your modeling software, giving you an integrated design and visualization process. With Enscape, you can render in real-time and walk stakeholders through your rendered model with incredible ease. Now buildings can be experienced long before they're built. And I have to add here that it's fun to use. Seriously, you cannot underestimate this. It's what makes this tool so amazing. This is something that most CAD and rendering programs can't claim. It democratizes your ability to create beautiful renderings at any time during the design process and use it as a tool to make valuable decisions during design. And as my friend Clifton Harness of TestFit says, it's one of the few well-established companies open to innovating in AEC. And you can see the outcome of this where his company recently showed off how they were able to take advantage of the new Enscape SDK to incorporate the real-time renderer with TestFit. More than 200,000 unique monthly users from over 150 countries use Enscape to envision better designs. Don't be left out. To learn more or sign up for a free 14-day trial, visit enscape3d.com slash trxl today. That's enscape3d.com slash trxl. So we don't need special hardware like we've got. We've all got the phone already. You, you kind of already know how to use this technology. I mean, people, because they know how to pinch to zoom and they know how to scroll by swiping and they know all these kind of gesture-based maneuvers on the glass itself, like you said, you can just orbit if you go into orbit mode or tabletop mode. Like you just hold the the thing up and it becomes your your magic window. Like these are the low barriers to entry that I think are so exciting about this technology in particular is how like you just hand somebody a device or they just pull up their device, they scan a code or they type in a URL and boom, it's there. Like there's no learning curve to that. And I think that's what is super powerful about this technology. I absolutely agree, right? There's a saying, software and user experience is like a joke. If you have to explain it, it's probably not very good. <laughs> nice. I have not heard that one, but that's and cool. I'm probably the last person to heard, hear that. But <laughs> Yeah. And, and so that's really what it comes down to, right, is making these applications so user-friendly and intuitive that anybody can pick them up and feel very comfortable and confident with them. It's obvious. It's got to be obvious. Yeah. And obvious is hard. Like you still have to get to the point where you can remove enough things from it, I'm sure, that it it's obvious uh, exactly how to use it. One of the things that you were talking about earlier was persistent. 
AR, pers- persistent spaces, um, just persistence. And I think what is so interesting to me about that is a demo that I saw a, a year or two ago from Apple, they always kind of show off this. There's always this kind of weird part of a keynote where they will show AR, like now it's time for the AR uh, piece of the show that we always do. And it's always video games. But I thought what was so interesting, I think it was, I want to say it was Lego. And they had like basically created this Lego city on this giant tabletop. And there was a few people walking around the table with a with an iPad. And they were interacting with the augmented reality model that was sitting by like tossing little bombs into it or by moving little cars around. And what's interesting is everybody else was experiencing what the other people were doing as well as doing things themselves to the same scene. So here's where it gets persistent. Everybody's like, okay, we're done playing this game for now. But then we go back into it later, and it's in the state you left it. And that, to me, is what's so interesting about persistent AR, is that is that this it remembers its previous state when you pick it back up again. I think there's huge potential there for architects, right? It's, talk about the design process is one piece of that but for like the way that we communicate things and the way you're talking about presenting construction progress to an owner it's really interesting to kind of think about this as linked to a timeline or the pre it's kind of like picking up a book and pick like where did i leave off it's still there it's kind of like that sense of a of a construct in my mind yeah yeah exactly yeah, we're we're working through another kind of interesting one to exactly aligned with what you're talking about now is we're developing some software right now that is a persistent spatial note system, which is exciting, right? And you can already imagine the implications on a construction site where, you know, instead of taking a photo and making a note, you're actually dropping a persistent note at that location in the world and you're leaving a note there and you're tagging somebody so that they know that they have, you know, something that they need to look at and review. But that note is not just tied to a two-dimensional space on a potential PDF, but it's actually tied to that location uh, in the world. So if somebody comes onto the construction site, opens up their phone and looks around, they can see these sprinklings of, of notes and they know which ones are assigned to them. Time to go on an adventure and and find all the notes that are assigned to you. Exactly. exactly. (laughs) Well, that's really cool. That's interesting to think of it as a way of you can pin a digital asset to a physical one in the real world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. So what are you excited about with where things are headed in, I don't know, maybe in the wearable or in the, you know, the future developments of AR? What, what's exciting to you? Yeah, I mean, I think the the wearables are definitely one that that I'm excited about. I guess the the thing that I'm most excited about is just the the, the endless possibility and the the momentum of augmented reality and the momentum of investment into this space is very exciting to me. More and more technology companies are coming out with a Unity software development kit. Right? There's just this uh, wave of this tidal wave of um, new tools that you can connect together, Mm -hmm. right? In new ways. And it creates this opportunity where, uh, where with a little bit of vision and, you know, being embedded into an industry pretty deeply, you can, you can see 
a pattern uh, that that it could be beneficial. Oh, there's this tool over here that Autodesk developed and Unity developed this tool, and we can tie that into Airtable's API and tie that over into you know this other project management system that we have here. And then, oh, we can grab all of our user base out of Microsoft Outlook's API, and we can tie it all up into some you know new, mm. interesting, very useful tool. All of these, all of these tools being able to connect now, it empowers us as AEC and technology firms to not build, not use what, um, what these technology companies, these, you know, these out of the box tools, what they assume that we is useful to us, but we get to decide and we get to figure out and we get to build what is truly useful to us. And, and I want to put a big asterisk on that because we're not trying to recreate the wheel. Right, we're not trying to rebuild something that we know a development team of a thousand people are building, and they're doing an incredibly good job. What we are trying to do is stand on the shoulders of giants, and connect new tools, and figure out new ways that we can communicate in these projects to save time and yeah, make better I, architecture. It, I, I, and I think there's something to be said for companies that are willing to put the R and D effort into doing that for that reason, right? Like. There's a there's a ton of examples of people out there who are either at the mercy of the large software vendors because they're not willing to do that kind of development to build the custom tools that they need on a daily basis, but they're they'll also just complain about it instead of doing something about it. So you can feel at the mercy and you can complain about it, but that's really not going to get you anywhere unless a lot of people jump on board and and scream about the same things, right, to get to the top of the the issue list on on Revit, for example, but yeah. but you guys are are taking a really proactive stance in building custom tools to scratch your own itch today. Absolutely, absolutely, and and that comment wasn't to put down any of those big technology companies that are building those out of the box tools. I actually commend right that they're opening up these APIs so that we mm-hmm. can now tie in and create tools utilizing their infrastructure, mm-hmm. you know, in new ways. And and I would also argue it's an incredibly good business move on their part. Mm-hmm. The more applications we develop using their APIs and their, you know, and their underlying infrastructure, the harder we're going to, you know, the, the more difficult it's going to be for us to part from, from their infrastructure. Yeah, so, you do start to like play into this whole ecosystem idea and that's beneficial to you and to them for sure. Yeah, it's mutually beneficial. Yeah. So... We talked about kind of the the output of what you're working on as far as like clients are concerned. I'm interested to talk a little bit about, or a lot, depending on what you've got here. But internally, how has this affected your the process of which you create architecture? I mean, what are how are teams inside shop adopting this? What are they saying about it? I know you're on a team that kind of is in support of the firm and you're looking for opportunities, but you're also listening to what they're coming to you with from an idea standpoint. So it seems like, I know shop has always been a highly technology-based architectural practice. Um, so maybe it's more of an anomaly than not, but as far as that that goes, but I'm just wondering like, how how is it going? What's the experience mm-hmm. behind the scenes for how this is helping the practice move forward? That is, uh, yeah, that, an, another great question and, and, and an exciting one, right? 
What's fun about leading a research team is is that you have skeptics, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would actually say that you know, shop and shop's leadership are incredibly on board with new process and new technology, right? That's kind of the ethos of shop themselves. Always always, always be on board with, uh, you know, finding new ways to innovate. But of course, as with any company, right, there will be people that kind of initially jump on board and they see the value very early on. And there will be some people that uh, don't see the value right away and, you know, and need to be convinced. And so, What's exciting is as we've been developing these tools and making them more user friendly and and making the decreasing the barrier to entry to using these tools, uh, we are seeing a large uptick in our internal usage. We're being approached by more teams being asked, oh, how can we integrate with your tools? Oh, how can we get our project in this application or in this application? And and we're hearing more and more from leadership about how these tools are becoming fundamental to making really important decisions in our design and construction processes. So it, it, we, we're seeing a lot of exciting growth and exciting, exciting adoption, but you know it, that doesn't come with, without growing pains and without, you're not going to win them all. So there are definitely some losses sprinkled in there. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if that fully answers your yeah, question. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it does. And I think I think it's interesting to think about it from, you know, different people inside of a firm speak different languages. Some need to see the win on somebody else's team to even start thinking about how they can apply it to their project and their team. When there are others who are like the early adopters that you talked about who are going to be on board because it's exciting new frontier and they're wired like that. It seems like, you know, I know there's a lot of tools that are developed in lots of practices all over the place where it's like this one off kind of bespoke solution software thing for this one project. Do you guys approach a lot of your projects from more of a bigger picture mentality and try to get a win that can be applied to other projects or does that not really figure into the initial project scope? I mean, is that something you back into later or is that something you, you try to do up front? The software development process, you're saying? Yeah, as far as like how it applies to the practice rather Mm -hmm. than a project. We are. are, We're we're always weighing a lot of variables as we're determining what is, you know, worth the investment of resources to develop, right? We're constantly going back and forth and saying, you know, figuring out where to allocate our time because we are a very small team and we have a very limited amount of resources. And so... A lot of what we're doing, right, is if we if we do pick a, a research direction to go and we pick some software that we think would be beneficial to build, absolutely, if we if we can build it in a way that, oh, you know, if this use case doesn't pan out, we can still take this note system that we developed and integrate that note system elsewhere into another application. Or, you know, oh, we, we built this new interaction uh, or this new user interface system. So, oh, we, you know, we can repurpose this later, you know, if this, if this specific. So, so do you guys try problem. to like build yeah. it modularly or do you, do you, I know it's, it's hard to predict, uh, you know, way out in the future of how things are going to get used and how they might want to get used. So I, I can imagine this isn't an easy question to answer, but like, do you think about modularity for chunks of potential software projects? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would say that that's pretty industry standard. Modularity is key. Componentizing your software is key to make sure that, you know, if something breaks, we can figure out where it breaks. Oh, it, it's this it's this one component within this piece of software that's having trouble and you kind of can silo that off and then fix the issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're definitely always thinking about uh, modularity. In our I think, software. I think when I think about all those crazy ass grasshopper scripts that you've seen posted online where someone does a screen capture of just an insane amount of spaghetti, like that is the opposite of what we're talking about, right? Like that's, that is a completely custom, probably one-off, like nobody who, except for the author, could go in and even find where the problem is. So now you're actually talking about kind of like the cluster model, right? Where it's like you're siloing off these pieces that then work in concert together. But if something breaks, you know where it breaks because it's in that one piece. Exactly. A spider web, if mm-hmm. you will. Yeah, Exactly that, right? We're trying to keep it clean, and I'll, I will absolutely be the first to say, right, I am not a trained software engineer. I went to school as an architect, undergrad and grad, and then went back for a little bit of software engineering, really just a boot camp, a six-month intensive. And again, all that's to say, I'm not a pro uh, engineer. I am a nerd, and I love, and yeah. I'm trying to get better at it, but you know, I wasn't really trained as a computer scientist. And so all of that's to say, I can create some spaghetti, let me tell you. (laughs) Yeah, so, uh, you know, typically it's research, it's research and development. Uh, We have to figure out if we can even get it to work before we Mm -hmm. can figure out how to write it the right way. You know what I mean? So a lot of it is uh, hacking, hacking stuff together. Okay, yes, we can do that. Now let's kind of move backwards a little bit and and do it right yeah back when i was in school it was called the study model or this is like your sketchbook right this is your prototyping ideas and then you if if it proves itself then you're going to go back and do it better or the right the quote unquote Mm -hmm. right way maybe maybe not but yeah there's no exactly exactly you don't want to allocate all that time if you know if it ends up if it ends up not working but I think this is a big hangup that that I've seen in the industry, which is, well, if we're going to allocate time and resources to do this, then it needs to be the most useful thing ever. It needs to prove itself out over time. And that then paralyzes people from being able to actually do that because someone like yourself is going to say, that's not the process, right? Like, we can't do it that way. We're not going to do it perfectly the first time. We're going to, it's just like designing. We're going to learn by doing the thing. And through that discovery process, we'll end up somewhere and it might not be where we thought we were going to end up. And that's, that's normal for software development too, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. It's iterate, 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 and just build, build, Mm -hmm. build. Uh, You just gotta, you gotta put things out there and, you know, give people the phone and let them use the app and see how they use it and figure out if it's useful. And you gotta keep, uh, keep building. So how did you get interested in, software development after architecture school or was it just i mean you talked a little bit about it at pratt right you got steered towards some certain tools but but okay it's capital a architecture i mean you work at a capital a architecture firm you guys build some great stuff you're a key piece of the team that makes those things happen but you're spending all your time developing software to enable that to happen how did that how did you get steered in that direction 
Yeah, I mentioned earlier that I had seen augmented reality for the first time, and I thought to myself internally, man, I really want to learn how to do that. That's actually kind of where it all started. Scratch, um, scratching your own itch at that point, right? It's yeah, like exactly. Pers- exactly. Yeah, I was actually working uh, in a firm at the time, uh, full-time, and going to grad school. And so I was kind of doing double time there. Uh, I, I luckily had a project that I convinced my professor that I wanted to do in Unity. And so I started just spending a ton of time in Unity. And I didn't really realize how much software engineering background knowledge I would need for that to really be able to do what I wanted to do. So I started doing some deep dives into the computer science side uh, of game engines. I got really excited and I, you know, built some apps and I was, you know, I had some apps on my phone for the first time with the little logo that I had created and I could open it up and it would run a 3D model and it was incredibly exciting and it would do augmented reality and I could drop it on a table. And so I took those apps and and all of my excitement and I went to my design technology leadership uh, at my current architecture firm and I said, hey, you know, look at all, look at this incredible tool. Look what I could build in a weekend. You know, this is mind blowing to me. And I think that it would probably be pretty useful to our clients. You know, what if we were the first architecture firm that could build a custom application for every single client and we could show them their, their projects in 3d and three 3d and in AR and give them this comprehensive understanding of their projects in a new way that no other architecture firm has done. And it's, it's, it's accessible and it's easy and it won't take that much overhead. This is kind of my argument, right? And I was uh, apparently excited enough for them to create me a new job where I uh, got to develop augmented reality and virtual reality applications full-time, which was amazing. And that was kind of my first foray into, you know, writing code all day, every day. So I was, this is while I was at HOK. I, I loved that job. I loved my team there. Greg Schleusner and, and, and James Van de Zand were incredible. And Conrad Sabone, uh, who mentored me through a lot of my software, early software development learning. Big shout out to Conrad. Yeah, so I, I learned and I failed and I had a really hard time and I didn't really understand and know what I was talking about. Uh, and so I wanted to get better writing code nights and weekends trying to grow my skills. And I realized that without that kind of fundamental CS computer science background, I, I really just didn't know a lot of the fundamentals that I needed. So I decided that I wanted to do this boot camp. That's when I went and did this six-month intensive program. And that really, really helped me along. Uh, And then I came to shop and got to help build a team that just builds applications. uh, And, uh, and the rest is history. I'm so glad you told that story because it points out a couple things that, you know, as far as a firm having kind of this proactive approach to saying, you know, this, this guy's got the passion for this. He's, he's, intrinsically motivated to make it happen he's spending nights and weekends doing it that's going to help us as much as it's going to help him and and giving you the runway to do that which i think is incredible because that you don't see that everywhere that's for sure a lot of times people are looking for somebody to you know be a warm body in a seat to produce drawings and 
not do something out of the normal category of an architect. So that that's incredible. But then also you kind of get into this, what does it actually take? Because when you started off on this, you had no idea what it took to actually do it. And so you learned through failing, and, and I'm sure successes as well, that you needed to go back to school and get a little bit more. So I think that's also an important story to tell because there are going to be people listening to this who are wondering if they can do it too. And so that's, I mean, this is one example. I'm sure there's many others where people maybe didn't go have to go back to school because they didn't have the same experience that that you did. But that to me just really points out that you've got to be serious about it too. Like it's not just a nights and weekends thing for everybody. It's also something that you can dedicate more resources to and get more serious about. And there are pathways forward in this profession to do the work that you're doing if you're willing to take those steps to do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and another thing that I'm excited to mention is that more and more architecture uh, firms are hiring, quote unquote, again, game developers, right? Mm-hmm. People with unity knowledge, people with unreal knowledge. Uh, there's more job postings at AEC tech firms that that request unity knowledge than ever before, mm-hmm. right? That used to never be on a Right. A job description. And so that's, you know, very exciting is that these these large firms around the world are seeing the value that these tools are bringing. Yeah. And it, it is an incredible story, uh, your personal story, but also I think what this technology is doing in the field of architecture and construction. Uh, so so kudos, man. That uh, This is a great story, and, and I'm appreciative of you for sharing it because I think this is something that a lot of people will be really interested in hearing your experience on how you got to where you are and that there are firms out there that are hiring for this type of work. I think it's absolutely incredible. And it starts to make you wonder where the future of an architectural education will need to be so that it's not training people for the jobs of yesterday, but it's training people for the jobs of tomorrow. It sounds like you found a program that helped you get there. Yeah, absolutely. It did. And, you know, I just want to reiterate how thankful I am that I had mentors and colleagues who also saw this vision and they Mm. saw, you know, they saw the potential of this and they, you know, uh, I think it's important to latch on to people who share that vision, you know, uh, people who um, believe in whatever it is, I would say technology for me, but believe in whatever it is that, that you're excited about, right? It, it, it's important to, to have those people around. Yeah, we talked about this the, the other day, but I, you know, this leads me back to a great mentor manager that I had when I worked at Apple. And by believing in you and your passion to do something is like the highest praise you can get from a leader wherever you work. And his words to me were, look, I think you could do anything. I think you could do whatever you want. My job as your manager is to get out of the way and help you make that happen. So remove roadblocks, remove red tape. You tell me what, where you want to go, and I'm going to help you get there. And that to me is, those are the types of people that you're talking about when you're talking about the mentors that saw that vision that had, it's not that they, it was their vision. They saw your vision and then they did everything they could to help you make that happen. And I think that's that's a fantastic story right there. And we need a lot more of that in AEC. I appreciate it and I agree and I'm yeah, I'm thankful 
got to keep working hard because of it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's a, with, with great, uh, with, with great responsibility, right? What's the, what's the, the quote from <laughs> with great power comes great responsibility. I mean, it, with great, where somebody has put a lot into you, then you have that responsibility. You got some big shoes to fill and, and you don't want to disappoint people, but thank you for sharing your story today, man. This has been really fun. And I'll put a link to your LinkedIn page where you share a lot of great information. And I think you have a website and obviously there's shop, the things that are the amazing work that's going on at shop. And uh, is there anywhere else that you would like to lead people online to follow along with what you guys are doing? Maybe the app store. I don't know. Where, where do you want to send people to, to just see is, is LinkedIn the best place? I think LinkedIn is a, a really good place right now. Uh, I think you hit them all okay. on the head. Fantastic. Well, Adam, thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you to Enscape for their support of this episode. Visit Enscape3D.com slash TRXL today for a free 14-day trial. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A dot com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out and, of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.